Hello, my name is Moriarty, and this is part 10 of my deep dive into the history of video games. Gaming had come a long way by 2011, with iconic characters like Sonic the Hedgehog celebrating their 20th anniversary. Time sure flies when you're collecting rings, doesn't it? This milestone highlighted how the industry had matured, become an essential part of our pop culture. But perhaps the most significant moment in 2011 was the landmark Supreme Court ruling in Brown v. Entertainment Merchants Association. This decision reinforced the idea that video games are a form of expression protected under the First Amendment and set the stage for future discussions on the role of games in society. This monumental decision opened the floodgates for developers to push boundaries and explore more mature themes in their games without the fear of legal repercussions. The ruling also shifted the responsibility of regulating video game content from the government to the industry itself giving organizations like the ESRB a more significant role in ensuring age-appropriate content for consumers. 2011 saw the continuation of Project $10, now widely referred to as Online Passes. This initiative, embraced by companies like Ubisoft, aimed to generate additional revenue by charging customers for access to certain online content and extracting more money from consumers. Simultaneously, the gaming industry saw the rise of a new monetization strategy loot boxes. This mechanic, first introduced in this newer, more predatory iteration by Andrew Wilson of EA in 2007's UEFA Championship League, was adopted by EA wholesale and incorporated into many of their games, including Madden and FIFA Ultimate Teams. The new game lets you build, train, and manage your Ultimate Team by buying packs and trading online with thousands of other gamers. The prevalence of loot boxes became a defining feature of the gaming landscape in 2011, generating substantial revenue, but also sparking debates about their ethical implications. In the midst of these industry shifts, Epic Games announced a new project, Fortnite. Initially revealed at the 2011 Spike Video Game Awards, Fortnite Save the World was conceived as a cooperative third-person shooter survival game. At that point, Epic was primarily known for their work on Gears of War, despite their earlier creations like Unreal and Jazz Jackrabbit. The announcement of Fortnite marked a new direction for the company, although the game's full potential would not be realized until later years. However, 2011 was not just a year of innovation and growth for the gaming industry, it was also a year of controversy and conflict. The PlayStation Network was hacked in response to Sony's lawsuit against George Geohots Hots, a hacker who had successfully jailbroken the PlayStation 3 firmware. This lawsuit, which centered around jailbreaking and reverse engineering, sparked a massive online backlash after Geohots released a viral rap diss track. Let's take this out of the courtroom and into the streets. I'm a beast at the least you'll face me in the Northeast. Uh. Anonymous, the hacker collective, threatened to take action. And a little over a week later, one of the largest DDoS attacks in the world started aimed at Sony, leading to a significant data breach of over 77 million users' accounts and a prolonged 23-day outage of the PlayStation Network. Sony failed to inform users of the massive data breach for almost a week, which eventually forced them to offer free identity theft protection and cost them over $170 million. So with this newfound freedom in mind, 
mind, how do you think developers took advantage of the opportunity to create more daring content? And how has this ruling influenced the perception of video games as an art form rather than just mindless entertainment? A lot of you might point to the expansiveness of Skyrim's world as its primary draw, and you wouldn't be wrong, but it's not just the size of Skyrim that makes it unique, it's how alive the world feels. The cities and towns have their own economies, politics, and conflicts. Inhabitants go about their daily lives, some of them even having family squabbles right in front of you. And let's not overlook the day-night cycle and dynamic weather patterns. Such environmental dynamics dynamics affect not only the aesthetics, but also NPC behaviors and even some quest outcomes. What's often glossed over in modern conversation is Skyrim's implementation of Radiant AI and Radiant Storytelling. The Radiant AI system allows NPCs to have goals, schedules, and even rudimentary decision-making abilities. This often means NPCs will engage in behavior without specific scripting, leading to organic, unpredictable encounters. On the storytelling side, Radiant quests ensure that the game generates tasks dynamically based on various factors, including your progress in the game, your location, and even the NPCs you've interacted with. Such innovation breathes life into the side quests, making the world of Skyrim less like a static theme park and more like a living, breathing entity. You weren't just another cog in the machine, you were actively affecting the gears and levers of Skyrim's complex social fabric. Additionally, the depth of character customization. Not only could you design your character's physical appearance in meticulous detail, but the game also allowed for an incredibly varied set of playstyles. Skills were divided into various paths like magic, combat, and stealth, each with its own extensive skill tree. Instead of forcing you down a set path, the game encouraged experimentation, allowing for a hybrid playstyle that could be continuously tweaked and refined. This was a significant departure from the more rigid class systems in previous Elder Scrolls titles, and it set a new standard for flexibility in RPG character development. Many titles were leaning into DLC as significant extra content, but also sometimes as a cash grab. Skyrim took a rather balanced approach. Its DLC packs like Dawnguard and Dragonborn were comprehensive, almost like traditional expansion packs, offering new storylines, characters, and locations. It felt less like piecemeal and more like genuine extensions of an already vast world. On the surface, Skyward Sword was every bit the quintessential Zelda experience. It had the dungeons, the puzzles, and the elaborate boss fights. Yet it's fascinating to see how this entry in the Zelda franchise clashed with contemporaneous trends particularly with another mammoth that year, Skyrim. Skyrim and Skyward Sword couldn't be more different in their approach to player agency and world building. While Skyrim provided an open canvas encouraging exploration, Skyward Sword was like a guided tour, beautiful but controlled. Shackled by the limitations of the Wii, it looked inward, revisiting tried-and-true Zelda elements and presenting them through a new lens. Motion controls that were, 
to put it mildly, a divisive aspect of the game. The Wii's limitations were glaring, with imprecise Wiimote controls resulting in simplistic enemy combat. This approach was at odds with the industry's leanings towards intricate gameplay mechanics. While it provided a new dimension to the game, it was often more cumbersome than revelatory. The technological constraints of the Wii acted as a bottleneck, stifling the grand ambitions of a franchise known for setting benchmarks rather than following them. The soundtrack, while fulfilling, didn't soar to the memorable heights of previous Zelda titles, but why? The answer lies within the complex relationship between the game's mechanics and its storytelling ambitions. Skyward Sword tried to stitch together a grand narrative tapestry focusing on the origins of Link and Zelda, and in that quest, its orchestral tones often felt like an afterthought rather than an integral part of the story. For a franchise lauded for its music, this couldn't just be a misstep, it was a symptom of a broader creative struggle. The game's linearity, coupled with the ornamentation of its its aesthetics and mechanics led to a sense of extravagance without substance. It was like an exquisite meal with too many flavors. Impressive, but overwhelming. This propensity for excess is particularly evident when you consider how previous Zelda titles such as Ocarina of Time or Majora's Mask hinged on fewer but more impactful elements to drive their narratives and gameplay. In the aftermath of Skyward Sword's release, the game found itself in a peculiar space. A commercial success with a dedicated fanbase, yet marred by critiques that couldn't be dismissed as mere quibbling. The divided reception and the obvious constraints of the hardware acted as a catalyst for introspection within the Zelda development team. As they grappled with divergent feedback, they knew that they stood on the precipice of a defining decision. And so, they ventured into the wild, uncharted territory, embarking on a quest to reimagine the very fundamentals of the series. The lessons from Skyward Sword gave birth to an entirely new vision, a game that would later defy convention and elevate the Zelda experience to unprecedented heights. In doing so, it became both a farewell to an era and a prelude to a new beginning, making it one of the most transformative entries in the history of the franchise. Portal 2 stands as an exceptional game that ingeniously manipulated player expectations by not just improving on its predecessor, but by fundamentally redefining it. While it's easy to praise the game for its sharp wit, memorable characters, and mind-bending puzzles, there's so much more to unpack if we're to understand its unique contribution to the gaming landscape. Big AAA titles were taking the world by storm with expansive open worlds, while mobile games were beginning to make serious economic inroads. Portal 2 offered something different, something that didn't fit neatly into the established paradigms. It was a puzzle platformer with a tightly woven narrative, a real outlier. One underemphasized aspect of Portal 2 is how it masterfully incorporated elements of the emerging field of environmental storytelling. The dilapidated chambers and eerie aesthetic of the Aperture Science Facility were meticulously crafted to convey a story without the needs for conventional cutscenes or dialogue. The eerily empty halls and the abandoned test chambers silently conveyed the game's world-building, allowing players to piece together the history of Aperture Science and its descent into chaos. 
In doing so, Portal 2 made each puzzle a narrative experience, something that went beyond just reaching from point A to point B. And let's not overlook the game's approach to cooperative gameplay, which was one of the most transformative features it brought to the table. Sure, co-op games weren't new, but Portal 2 took the concept and added an intellectual layer. It's not just about two players being present in the same game, it's about two players having to think in sync, having to genuinely cooperate in a way that few games had ever asked. It didn't just redefine cooperative gaming, it refined it. This wasn't about twitch reflexes or who had the better aim, it was a unique cognitive experience that built friendships and spawned immeasurable hours of shared laughter, and occasional frustration as players fumbled through the game's innovative puzzles. One criticism often leveled at sequels is that they lack innovation, opting to play it safe by sticking to the established formula. Portal 2 defied this notion with the introduction of new gameplay mechanics like excursion funnels, propulsion gel, and aerial faith plates. Each of these served not just as new toys in a sandbox, but as integral pieces of an ever-expanding puzzle landscape. These additions were more than just tools to navigate space, they were fundamental shifts in how players had to perceive and interact with the environment. This game dared to blend humor, existentialism, and even moments of horror. Gladys and Wheatley stand as some of the most memorable video game characters, offering levity and yet adding depth to the game's storyline. The audacity to craft a puzzle game that's not just about solving puzzles, but also about questioning the human condition sets it apart. From its cryptic storytelling to its punishing difficulty, Dark Souls has cemented its place not only as a significant moment in gaming history, but also as a cultural phenomenon. Players were seeing lots of narrative-driven experiences with cinematics and heavily scripted sequences. Dark Souls did the complete opposite by stripping away almost all conventional storytelling techniques. It was all about show, don't tell. You weren't handed a narrative, you discovered it. This approach to storytelling encouraged players to delve into the lore, discuss theories online, and share information. It didn't just create a game, it birthed an entire community of archaeologists digging through its digital world, picking apart item descriptions and environmental cues. This collaborative interpretation of lore was revolutionary. It empowered the player to be a storyteller, an interpreter, a detective, roles not usually given to players in such full measure. Immediately, you might think about difficulty, a defining characteristic of Dark Souls. The game is notoriously punishing. But let's be clear, it's not difficult for the sake of being difficult. It's it's challenging to demand mastery. Death in Dark Souls is a learning experience. You learn about enemy patterns, environmental hazards, and of course, your own limitations. This punishing design philosophy became a prominent feature not just in From Software's future titles, but also influenced a generation of games that wanted to capture the same magic. You can trace the DNA of Dark Souls in titles like Hollow Knight, Neo, and even more narrative-focused experiences like The Last of Us, where difficult and player skill are interwoven with the storytelling. It was a title that redefined what challenge in video games could mean, inverting the perception that difficulty is just an arbitrary barrier, and instead making it a substantive part of the experience and helping take another step towards birthing its own genre, the Souls-like. 
One of the most influential aspects of Dark Souls, however, is its online multiplayer system, specifically its blend of cooperative and competitive gameplay elements within a primarily single-player experience. Messages left by other players, appearing as scrawled glyphs around the ground, could offer valuable advice or intentionally mislead. Invading phantoms could disrupt your progress at any time, making even safe zones feel fraught with tension. Beyond Good and Evil was a title that initially struggled to find its footing, especially in the highly competitive landscape of 2003. It was competing against established franchises, big-name releases, and genre-defining blockbusters, but what it had in spades was a genuine artistic vision. In 2011, when this game would be placed in this time capsule, the landscape of gaming was leaning heavily towards online multiplayer experiences, yet Beyond Good and Evil reminded of the potency and intimacy of single-player narratives when it released an HD version on the Xbox 360. Instead of relying on the usual tropes, Beyond Good and Evil fused elements from different genres, stealth, puzzle-solving, photography, and even hovercraft racing. The blend created an experience far richer and more nuanced than the sum of its parts. You weren't just mindlessly battling foes, you were a journalist, gathering evidence against an oppressive regime. The game demanded not just dexterity, but also intellectual engagement. In other words, it asked you to be a part of its world, not just a bystander. And that's a tough thing to pull off, especially in an era where gaming was saturated with derivative titles that played it safe by adhering to tried-and-true formulas. The narrative delved into themes of government corruption, the role of media, and the power dynamics inherent in societal structures. Themes that are not just thought-provoking, but also eerily relevant in today's climate. And who could forget Jade, the game's protagonist? She was an ethnically ambiguous, complex character that shirked the typical gender norms of the video game industry. No skimpy outfits, no damsel in distress scenarios. Jade was a reporter, a caretaker, a friend, and a revolutionary. In an industry that was and let's face it, often still is, littered with one-dimensional female characters, Jade was a breath of fresh air. One major reason why Beyond Good and Evil didn't catch on immediately was its marketing, or rather the lack thereof. Ubisoft wasn't sure how to market a game that was so different, so innovative, so unclassifiable. Yet, after winning numerous awards and garnering a cult following, it was clear the game had something valuable to say, and it eventually earned this HD release. It's a testament to the power of visionary game development, and how an initial commercial misstep can later turn into a revered classic. In the twilight years of Bungie's tenure over Halo, Reach emerged as their swan song. Their departure symbolized the end of an era, closing a chapter that had begun a decade earlier. Bungie's desire to chart new horizons and retain their creative autonomy led them towards Destiny and a partnership with Activision. Yet, Microsoft had too much invested in the Halo franchise to let it wither. Enter 343 Industries, a studio assembled from the ground up with the sole purpose of taking Halo into the future. The transition, however, was not without its challenges. While many of Bungie's core team had moved on, some chose to remain, now working under the 343 banner. 
This blending of old blood with new brought both continuity and fresh perspective, but also led to internal debates about the franchise's direction. Bungie's approach to Reach was emblematic of a team knowing they were passing the torch. They sought to push boundaries, perhaps even more than in previous titles. The result was a game that both revered the series' heritage and boldly charted new territory. As 343 took over, they faced an unenviable task. They were simultaneously architects and archaeologists, crafting the future while excavating the past. Their every move was scrutinized, compared, and often critiqued. However, beneath this pressure was a team deeply passionate about Halo, its lore, and its legacy. The evolution seen in Reach provided invaluable lessons for 343. It showcased the dangers and opportunities inherent in tampering with a beloved formula. On one hand, it demonstrated that innovation could breathe fresh life into a series. On the other, it underscored the importance of understanding, respecting, and balancing the desire of both new and veteran fans. The period surrounding Reach was transformative for Halo. It was a time of farewells and new beginnings, of risks and rewards. Through this tumultuous transition, one thing remained clear, the resilience of the Halo universe and its ability to adapt, innovate, and captivate. Both Bungie's audacity with Reach and 343's commitment to the franchise exemplified the spirit of Halo. A universe always in flux, but one that continues to shine brightly in the vast expanse of gaming history. The rise of Call of Duty, particularly the Modern Warfare and Black Ops series, had introduced a fresh, high-octane gameplay that was rich in customization, speed, and quick-fire engagements. This drew in millions, establishing a new paradigm for multiplayer shooters. No longer was it sufficient for games to offer mere arena shooter experiences. Players now demanded depth, progression, and a sense of continual achievement. The arena shooter, once the reigning monarch, now had to prove its relevance in a world where players hungered for continual progression and rapid engagements. Faced with this new landscape, 343 Industries confronted profound questions about Halo's identity. Should it cling to its arena shooter roots, characterized by balanced starts and map control, or should it adapt, incorporating elements that appealed to the broader FPS audience? Halo 3 was often heralded as the zenith of the Halo multiplayer experience. For many, its unadulterated arena combat was Halo in its purest form. With Reach, Bungie had incorporated abilities like Sprint, Jetpacks, and Armor Lock. For some purists, this was a dilution of what made Halo, Halo. Given this sentiment, 343 felt an inclination to revert, to bring Halo back to what it was during its Halo 3 days. The abilities in Reach, in their perspective, were divergences, not the mainstay. However, there was a massive miscalculation in this strategy. While the hardcore may have been vocal about their desire for a return to roots, the numbers told a different story. Reach, with all its changes, had a player base that dwarfed its predecessor. This wasn't a small minority to be ignored, it was a thunderous majority. By pandering to hardcore fans, 343 risked alienating this vast player base. The waters were further muddied by the involvement 
involvement of certain affinity in the development of Halo Anniversary. While 343 Industries was the face of the franchise, certain affinity played a significant role behind the scenes. Their influence was palpable, and the subtle shifts in game design and mechanics showcased a different interpretation of what Halo could be. The post-Bungie era was a time of tumult for the Halo franchise. Navigating the choppy waters of fan expectations, industry trends, and internal visions was no small task. 343 Industries, despite their genuine passion and dedication, found themselves at the crossroads more than once trying to discern the path forward. The challenge was not just understanding what Halo was, but envisioning what it could become. The balance between innovation and tradition is delicate, and the journey of Halo post-reach is a testament to this intricate dance. Batman Arkham City was Rocksteady Studios' ambitious sequel to Batman Arkham Asylum. It reflects Gotham in all its chaotic glory, meshing seamlessly with the game's compelling narrative. Arkham City wasn't content to recycle its predecessor's success, and the result is a game that accurately captures the essence of being the Dark Knight. No small feat when considering the many lamentable Batman titles that preceded it. Previous superhero games often reduced the character to a few signature moves, but Arkham City's utility belt felt like an extension of Batman himself. The gadgets weren't just tools for puzzles or combat, they were conduits for strategy and decision-making in real time, serving to diversify gameplay and deepen your connection to Batman's persona. But it's the game's treatment of its characters that is particularly groundbreaking. Batman isn't just a muscular guy in a suit, he's a detective, a tactician, and most importantly, a human. His vulnerabilities come to the service through interactions with other characters, each rendered with incredible complexity. Consider the Joker, a character that could easily be reduced to chaotic evil, but is instead depicted with layers of desperation, insanity, and wit. The game lets you dive deep into the ethos of Batman and the city he protects, an experience no comic book could singularly offer. Dead Space 2 is a classic example of when an excellent sequel doesn't meet lofty corporate expectations. We could call it the perfect sequel to Dead Space finding mechanics and providing a tighter narrative. Moreover, the psychological aspects of Isaac Clarke's character were revolutionary for the genre at the time. Most horror games focus solely on external threats, but Dead Space 2 also turned inward, exploring the psychological turmoil of its protagonist. This became a fascinating case study in how narrative elements can enhance gameplay. Isaac's deteriorating mental state wasn't just a story element. It affected how you interacted with the game world, blending narrative and gameplay in a manner that has been emulated but rarely equaled. Yet, it didn't move millions of copies leading to EA's decision to shutter Visceral. This is symptomatic of an industry issue, that sometimes unrealistic expectation that every sequel has to be a blockbuster to validate its existence. Finally, let's touch on Team Fortress 2. Originally released in 2007 alongside monumental titles like Portal,
Portal and Half-Life 2 in the orange box, it initially played second or even third fiddle. But 2011 was the year Team Fortress 2 found its stride by transitioning to a free-to-play model. What could easily be dismissed as a simple business decision actually marked a critical juncture in the industry. Team Fortress 2 not only reinvented its economic structure, but also initiated a wider industry trend towards service-based models. It demonstrated that games could evolve and remain relevant long after their release, fostering a community that would stick around for years. Team Fortress 2 was among the first major titles to embrace a player-driven economy through the trading and crafting of in-game items. Players could be architects of their own experience, shaping the game both economically and aesthetically. And let's be clear, this was at a time when the dialogue around microtransactions and player-driven economies was still in its infancy. Team Fortress 2 helped lay the groundwork for the massive, player-empowered landscapes we see in games today. In 2012, Sony was wrestling with the task of adapting console games to the PlayStation Vita. The company had gleaned insights from the PSP's journey, which, despite its robust sales figures, comparable to the Game Boy Advance, was perceived by many as having a shorter lifespan due to an over-reliance on poorly executed home console ports. This perception, whether fair or not, was a hurdle Sony had to overcome. With the Vita, Sony sought to dissuade third-party publishers from merely porting games. Instead, they advocated for the development of new, bespoke entries that were linked to popular console franchises. This strategy was designed to underscore the Vita's unique attributes and sidestep the uncoordinated, scattered content development that had been a challenge for the PSP. However, this approach was not without its problems. For instance, games like Sly 4 and PlayStation All-Stars were required by Sony to have a Vita port day and date of release. This decision to force games to have Vita ports, however, seemed to have been made late in the development process, leading, in some cases, to structural issues related to the late edition. Ratchet Full Frontal Assault for the Vita was another casualty of this push for cross-compatibility. The Vita port was delayed by six months and was of such poor quality that it led to the cancellation of the sequel's Vita port. Insomniac Games, the developer of the original game, was so upset with the quality and being forced to constantly explain what happened that they decided against further Vita ports and asked Sony directly to kill the sequel. Gamers and journalists alike found themselves asking if some of these games' fidelity had to be lowered to match the Vita's capabilities, which negatively impacted their reception. The Wii U was also released alongside the PS Vita. Both were met with great anticipation, but their eventual fates told a different story. The Wii U struggled to find its footing in the market, partly due to a lack of strong must-have titles and a confusing marketing strategy. Check out Wii Sports Club. With Wii Sports Club, we can train and play and finally compete online against other families. Many people, even today, watching this very video likely still don't know that the Wii U was a completely new console and not just a gamepad add-on to the Wii. On the other hand, the PS Vita suffered from an identity crisis as it tried to compete with the rise of mobile gaming. The cross-buy initiative also meant that you had to download the Vita games onto proprietary, expensive memory sticks. 
The Vita did not have an SD slot, which meant the gamers were forced to purchase these proprietary memory sticks in order to enjoy the full benefits of the cross-buy initiative. This was a point of contention for many, as these memory sticks were not only expensive, but also necessary to fully utilize the Vita's capabilities. Despite their setbacks, these consoles did pave the way for innovations that would later be embraced by other platforms. As these new consoles struggled to make a splash, PC gaming was experiencing a renaissance. Titles like League of Legends, World of Tanks, World of Warcraft, and Crossfire dominated sales charts, proving that PC gaming was far from dead. This resurgence can be attributed to several factors, including the advent of digital distribution platforms like Steam, which made it easier for gamers to access a vast library of games and the rise of free-to-play and multiplayer online games that fostered thriving communities. 2012 also saw the release of The Witcher 2, a game that many gamers might not even be aware of because The Witcher series started at 3. However, the most exciting development in 2012 was the meteoric rise of esports. Major milestones like the 2005 million dollar CPL tournament won by Fatality and the 1997 Red Annihilation competition won by Dennis Fong had already set the stage. Then, the launch of Twitch catapulted it into the mainstream, and now, with a mainstream audience that was hungry for gaming content, esports was primed to explode. As a result, esports began to spread its influence beyond Korea and into the US and other countries. How has the rise of esports and platforms like Twitch transformed the gaming landscape, not only in terms of competition, but also in the way we consume and engage with gaming content? Mass Effect 3 was the culmination of Bioware's epic space opera that combined meticulous storytelling, complex characters, and consequential player choices. Today, it stands as a monument to interactive narrative, despite the cacophony of opinions surrounding its ending, an ending so controversial it inspired impassioned essays, YouTube videos, and heated debates. But let's put that aside for a moment to recognize the Sisyphean task of crafting an ending that could satisfy all players. No ending could carry the weight of every choice, every consequence, and every player's unique story across three different games. The challenge was monumental, so if you're seeking a universally acclaimed finale, you're asking for the moon on a stick. Outside of the ending, however, Electronic Arts was going through an existential crisis of sorts concerning used game sales, and the commercial viability of single-player games. It was an era when the fear of piracy and second-hand sales gripped publishers so profoundly that a single-player game, to many executives, seemed like a risky proposition without a lifeline to continued post-purchase revenue and delayed trade-ins. This was the zeitgeist from which Mass Effect 3's multiplayer emerged, not just as an ancillary feature, but as a directive from EA. The publisher insisted that every game in their portfolio including those that are primarily single-player, should incorporate multiplayer and, more explicitly, microtransactions. EA's stance on this was, for the most part, rooted in their success with the FIFA Ultimate Team model, a form of the loot box mechanism that had demonstrated staggering profits. Hence, Mass Effect 3 was fitted with a co-op multiplayer mode featuring card packs, essentially a forerunner to the loot box system that later engulfed the industry. At 
At first glance, the inclusion of multiplayer in a narrative-driven franchise seemed not just forced, but incongruous. However, what no one expected was that Mass Effect 3's multiplayer would actually be fun, engaging, and surprisingly well executed. BioWare took a potentially awkward addition and turned it into a strength. The game's combat mechanics were notably more fluid than its predecessors, making teaming up with friends to face waves of enemies unexpectedly satisfying. While it was a transparent attempt to elongate the lifespan of the title and offer an avenue for additional revenue, the mode's cooperative nature and its contribution to the single-player campaign's galactic readiness made it feel integrated rather than tacked on. The system of loot boxes, or card packs as they were known, allowed players to unlock various items, from potent weapons to new character classes. What's fascinating is how the card packs leveraged a blend of excitement and anticipation, mirroring the act of unwrapping trading cards or Magic the Gathering packs. There was an element of randomness where unlocking an Asari Adept or a Krogan Soldier felt like hitting a mini jackpot. This freemium-style microtransaction in a full-priced game wasn't yet part of the mainstream debate. The primary focus remained on the single-player narrative and its controversial conclusion. In retrospect, Mass Effect 3's implementation of card packs served as a template for EA, later manifesting in other franchises like Battlefield and the ill-fated Star Wars Battlefront 2. What started as a secondary feature in Mass Effect 3 that no one talked about metastasized into an industry-wide conundrum fueling scrutiny, legal inquiries, and player backlash. The roots of this significant industry discussion can be traced back to the unsuspecting multiplayer mode of Mass Effect 3. When Forbes listed 1991's Battletoads as one of the five video game franchises that need to come back from the dead, the magazine didn't merely suggest a revamp. It recommended that a modern Battletoads should maintain its core mechanics of side-scrolling, but adopt the contemporary 2.5D style, not unlike what was employed in games like Mark of the Ninja. This wasn't a lone voice. Complex, Maxim, and Game Revolution echoed these sentences. Sentiments. Why, you might ask? Well, there was a genuine yearning for games that offered a balanced blend of nostalgia and modern mechanics. This was the era of indie titles like Fez and Braid that conjured 8-bit and 16-bit memories while infusing modern sensibilities into gameplay. So the climate was ripe for the re-entry of a title like Battletoads, which had always straddled the line between infuriating and exhilarating. However, Battletoads didn't just have mainstream journalism singing its praises. The gaming community took part in elevating its profile through an unexpected route, pranking the Pawn Stars TV show. Colton's over. Hi, um, what are your guys' hours? Like, the Nine to nine. Oh, nine okay. to nine, seven days a week. All right, so I'm looking for some, it's, um, do you have Battletoads? No, your mom came down and she sucked us dry of the last one. Oh, and then she okay. gave Chumley a head job. <laughs> That's hot. 
A 4chan mass prank had callers incessantly asking Rick Harrison, the show's proprietor, if he had Battletoads in stock. This act might seem trivial, but it brought Battletoads back into the cultural dialogue in a way that was both mischievous and oddly fitting for a game that itself had a cheeky sense of humor. There's something about the irreverence of that prank that embodies the essence of the Battletoads experience. Audacious, unexpected, and deeply communal. Max Payne 3 is an enigma in Rockstar's portfolio. While the company's name is often synonymous with grandiose open-world experiences like GTA or Red Dead Redemption, Max Payne 3 opted for a tightly wound narrative that felt almost claustrophobic in its intensity. The game entered a market where linear, story-driven games were becoming the exception rather than the rule. However, its failure to achieve the legendary status of other Rockstar titles isn't indicative of its quality, but rather an industry and audience ready to pivot to something else. This was the time when open-world games were reaching their peak. Skyrim had set a standard, and Assassin's Creed was taking notes. The sandbox was the playground everyone wanted a piece of, so when Rockstar released a game where the sandbox was essentially a brooding noir narrative, well, it almost felt like bringing a knife to a gunfight. Yet it's this very design philosophy that makes Max Payne 3 a fascinating study. The linearity provided a focus on storytelling and mechanics that allowed Rockstar to create one of the most atmospheric third-party shooters ever made. By transplanting Max from the gritty streets of New York to Sao Paulo, Brazil, the game creates an atmosphere of alienation and dislocation, perfectly mirroring Max's inner turmoil. He's a stranger in a strange land, and the game pulls no punches in showing the disparity between the wealthy elite and the crime-ridden favelas. Sao Paulo becomes more than a backdrop, it's an integral part of the narrative, deeply layered and culturally nuanced. It serves the dual function of being a geographical and a psychological space, a strategy seldom employed with such efficacy. The bullet time feature, a staple in the series, was refined to an art form in this installment. The fluidity of diving in slow motion while firing bullets made each combat scenario an adrenaline-pumping ballet of violence. The physics engine rendered every bullet, every shell casing with meticulous detail, offering a degree of realism that was unparalleled at the time. The game would automatically switch to a cinematic kill cam for the final enemy in a combat sequence, creating these miniature, unscripted action movie climaxes. The mechanic was more than just a flashy gimmick, it was an example of gameplay and narrative elements working together seamlessly to elevate the tension and the stakes. In Max Payne, and especially in his internal monologue, we see a character with layers, someone genuinely struggling with guilt, loss, and a self-destructive of streak a mile wide. Rockstar took a risk by not making him likable, by showing us the raw, unfiltered mess that was Max Payne. And this narrative risk was nestled within a meticulously crafted noir storytelling format, complete with graphic novel-esque cutscenes that were both an homage to the series' roots and a unique stylistic choice that intensified the game's heavy atmosphere. 
Following the release of Max Payne 3, Rockstar shifted its full attention to open-world experiences like GTA. Despite its quality, Max Payne 3 was caught in the confluence of changing industry trends and overwhelming expectations. Partnered with L.A. Noir's failure the year before, Rockstar viewed the game as a lesson in the pitfalls of venturing outside one's successful formula. At first glance, the simplicity of Journey's gameplay mechanics might seem underwhelming. You can jump, you can sing to interact with the environment, and that's it. But this simplicity is deceptive, it actually serves a profound purpose. Focusing the player on the emotional and spiritual facets of the gaming experience rather than bogging them down with complex controls. By boiling down gameplay to its most essential elements, that game company allowed the flavor of emotion, connectivity, and artistry to come through more strongly. This was a direct pushback against the trend of games that were becoming overly complicated. In an era obsessed with competitive matchmaking, leaderboards, and online trash talk, Journey took a left turn. You encounter other players on their own journeys, but the game never tells you who they are. There's no text chat, no voice chat, just interaction through in-game actions and musical notes. It forces a re-evaluation of multiplayer interactions, steering them away from the zero-sum game of winners and losers towards something more mutually beneficial, more human. Journey was an early standard bearer for accessibility in gaming. Its uncomplicated controls and lack of dialogue meant that it could be played and enjoyed by almost anyone, regardless of gaming experience or even language spoken. At a time when the industry was grappling with how to make games more inclusive, Journey quietly made its point by being a universally approachable experience. FTL, Faster Than Light, is often seen as an anomaly in a year that was packed with massive game releases. Here, we had a crowdfunded indie title, fundamentally rewriting the book on what a space simulation could be, and, to an extent, what video games could aspire to achieve. Starting with the gameplay mechanics, FTL's take on the roguelike genre had people rethinking the very terminology we use, giving birth to what we now term rogue lights. It sounds like semantics, but the distinction is significant. Rogue lights, like FTL, maintain the high difficulty and permadeath of their rogue-like ancestors, but incorporate more forgiving elements that make the game more accessible without diluting the challenge. While a conventional rogue-like might set you back to square one in the harshest ways possible, FTL handles failure as an educational experience. Every loss teaches you something about your strategy, the enemies you face, and how to better prepare for the new challenges ahead. This reshaping of the roguelike genre didn't just affect how we talk about these games, it influenced a generation of developers who saw FTL's success as validation for their own roguelite visions. The Kickstarter campaign for FTL rode a wave of enthusiasm for crowdfunded game development. Released just months after the explosive success of the Double Fine Adventure campaign, FTL managed to leverage not just timing, but also the quality of its concept to turn a modest $10,000 funding goal into more than $200,000. Unlike many crowdfunded projects that would come later plagued by delays or incomplete releases, FTL fulfilled its promises, thereby boosting faith in crowdfunding as a legitimate means of game development. This wasn't just an indie success story, it was a proof of concept for the viability of crowdfunding in the gaming industry. 
it's easy to overlook Amnesia. However, that would be a critical error, for the impact of this game on the horror genre is so profound that it virtually rewired the expectations for all horror games that followed. The game's atmosphere thrives on helplessness, contrary to the power fantasies that dominated the gaming landscape. Here, the survival element is stripped down to its core. You don't fight, you hide. And this isn't just some momentary gameplay gimmick, they're not just taking away your weapons, it's a philosophical standpoint that reinforces the dread, forcing you to confront the game's intricate environments and story with a sense of vulnerability that is absent in other titles. While critics have scrutinized the controls, the discomfort actually augments the player's sense of powerlessness, which was the point all along. Prior to Amnesia, jump scares were generally considered cheap tactics, but in the confines of this game, they were used sparingly and effectively, with a buildup of tension that had more in common with psychological horror films than with typical video games. This subtlety directly impacted other titles that followed, like Alien Isolation, to opt for a more restrained, thoughtful approach to scaring players. Markiplier's Let's Play series for Amnesia became a community catalyst, pulling this title from the depths of niche forums to mainstream conversations. The game's layered storytelling and atmospheric gameplay found a new mode of expression through the performative aspects of Let's Plays, and Markiplier's almost 300 videos ensured that this title remained in public consciousness. But it wasn't just a one-way street, this spotlight directly contributed to the commercial success of the franchise, and influenced the broader gaming industry to take notice of Let's Plays as a viable marketing tool. The Walking Dead's brilliance lies in its ingenious blend of narrative and mechanics, creating the illusion of an open, reactive world. At the core, you're always walking a set path, but it never feels like it. Instead, you're engaged in this intricate dance of decision-making where it feels like every step you take is uniquely yours. The narrative was structured in such a way that the choices felt meaningful, even though, with hindsight, they may have only led to subtle differences in the game's outcome. This technique was beautifully deceptive in its simplicity, but offered an illusion of expansive possibilities that games with far more complex branching paths struggle to achieve. That mastery of illusion was important for the time. The gaming world was already familiar with so-called moral choice systems thanks to games like Mass Effect and Fallout, but what telltale the developers achieved was an emotional weightiness that these bigger titles often failed to capture. You weren't deciding whether to be good or evil, you were deciding who to save and who to leave behind. You were making choices that reflected not just on the player, but on the in-game relationships you had nurtured. Telltale Games' rapid success was, in a perverse way, their undoing. After The Walking Dead, the company took on multiple big-name projects almost simultaneously. The internal communication broke down, and a toxic culture emerged, characterized by crunch time, screaming matches, and creative stagnation. Founder Kevin Bruner's leadership style could be described as iron-fisted at best, stifling at worst, culminating in what employees would call a creative bottleneck. These troubles began to manifest in their later projects, which lacked the same magic that made The Walking Dead such a standout. The Walking Dead did more than just raise the bar for narrative-driven games, it set a precedent that Telltale itself struggled to meet in subsequent years. The industry watched as a 
studio that had once revolutionized storytelling in video games slowly dissolved, a victim of its own initial success and poor management. The game serves as a poignant contrast to its own creator's fate, capturing the essence of a studio at its creative peak, even as it stood on the precipice of its own undoing. When Bungie handed over the reins of the Halo series to 343 Industries, it wasn't just a transfer of a title, it was an invitation to innovate. And 343 Industries, in their quest to carve out their own unique space in this expansive universe, sought a deeper exploration into characters and narrative. One might say where they truly ventured into new territory was their ambitious, albeit dense, incorporation of the Halo universe's vast mythology. For longtime fans, the richness and complexities they added could be an intellectual treat, but for newcomers, it felt like diving into a novel halfway through. This focus on established mythology and complex terminology was both its strength and its pitfall. As rich as the Halo universe is, leaning too heavily into its intricate lore risked alienating players, especially ones just there to shoot things. Narrative-driven games were gaining traction, players sought deeper, more immersive experiences. 343 Industries recognized this trend and aimed to develop a more interconnected narrative not just confined to Halo 4, but to be part of a multi-game arc. This was evident in their intentional connectivity to media like the Forerunner Saga and Kilo 5 trilogy novels. It's quite the endeavor isn't it? Yet no game is without its trials. The growing pains of 343 Industries are well documented. From a modest dozen to nearly 200 employees, each with a different vision for the game. Stories of hiring people who weren't fans of the game because they believed they could improve it is a testament to the diverse viewpoints that contributed to Halo 4. The challenges of rapid expansion, reshuffling production pipelines, and fostering a unified company culture cannot be understated. If we zoom out, we see a studio striving for perfection, adapting to challenges, and ultimately delivering a game that never could have lived up to the standards the gaming world put on it. City of Heroes was the superhero MMO that fans didn't just play, they lived in it. It had already been around for nearly a decade, but it was this year when its servers were finally shut down. The collective outcry that ensued wasn't mere nostalgia. The game had organically grown a government of sorts. Players had mayoral roles, there were recognized alliances and hierarchies, and even economics discussions about the in-game currency markets. The community reaction action was nothing short of a full-blown grassroots campaign. Petitions flying left and right, even illegal third-party servers cropping up. This uproar wasn't just about a game, it was about an ecosystem of player stories, alliances, and fan-created content that had evolved over the years. It offered a glimpse into the emotional investment players can have in an online world, underlining the concept of MMOs not just as games, but as virtual societies with real emotional stakes and serves as one of the most important examples for why game preservation is so important. What's especially riveting here is the community's resilience. In the face of potential legal challenges and the towering might of intellectual property rights, players have come together to run multiple private servers, each offering varied experiences, whether it's reliving the classic game or partaking in 
in fan-generated content, and hosting over 100,000 players. This isn't just a tribute, it's a testament to the robust collective memory of a digital society. Psychonauts is a game that demonstrates the incredible power of a second wind. Its resurrection via Humble Bundle showcased something crucial about the gaming industry. The ability for a game to transcend its initial commercial failings through the sheer force of its artistry and innovation. Not only did Psychonauts find financial redemption, but it also highlighted the rising power of digital distribution channels to give overlooked classics a new lease on life. XCOM Enemy Unknown was not just another turn-based strategy game, it was one of the early viral hits that had the internet collectively holding its breath in anticipation. In an era when streaming and Let's Plays were just gaining traction, this game was perfectly designed for shareability. It provided unique, gripping narratives in every playthrough, becoming the stuff of legend on forums and social media, turning permadeath from a gameplay mechanic into an emotionally narrative tool, a sort of virtual Greek tragedy played out in real time. Knights of the Old Republic 2 is a shining example of how a community can pick up the pieces when a game launches in a terrible state. The truncated development schedule imposed by LucasArts prior to KOTOR 2's release in 2004 led to a game that felt unpolished and broken. The Sith Lord's Restored mod not only completed the game, but also spotlighted how fan efforts could essentially become co-authors of the game's narrative, something that's become increasingly common in the age of early access and open beta testing. The efforts to restore the game by fans show the potential for communal stewardship of art in gaming, a fascinating dialogue between creators and consumers that's unique to this medium. It's also an uncomfortable but critical lesson in the consequences of unrealistic corporate deadlines. Zombie U is an intriguing anomaly in the context of the Wii U's life. It was an M-rated, grim experience on a console that was largely marketed for its family-friendly fare. But it didn't just shoehorn traditional gameplay into a new control scheme. It integrated the Wii U's gamepad into its core mechanics. This wasn't just about adding a second screen, but enhancing the suspense by making you look away from the primary display, making every action, like rummaging through your bag, fraught with tension. This title stood out as a moment of clarity that third-party developers could indeed produce remarkable experiences on the platform, giving hope to a device that was struggling for its place in the market. And then there's To The Moon, the small project by Can Gao that punched far above its weight. This is an RPG Maker game made for a few dollars by a single man over the course of about a year that goes on to win Game of the Year awards and won Best Story against Catherine, Ghost Trick, Phantom Detective, Portal 2, and Xenoblade Chronicles. Before To the Moon, RPG Maker was often associated with hobbyist projects, lacking in polish or depth, but this game turned those assumptions on their head, proving that the engine could be a vehicle for nuanced, emotionally impactful storytelling. It wasn't just that it won awards, it was that it fundamentally redefined what was considered possible within the constraints of amateur game development tools. 
Thank you for joining me on this journey through history. If you've enjoyed today's episode, there's even more to discover in the next installment. Make sure to download the next episode to continue unraveling the past. If you haven't already, please consider leaving me a five-star review and sharing with your friends and family, but feel free not to. A special thank you to my Patreon patrons who allowed me to make this. Together, we can keep the threads of gaming history alive. I'll see you on the next one.